This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. It's me, Damian Mason, with a great program for you today. Got a great guest. We were just talking before we hit the record button. She's a smart lady. Her name is Aubrey Betancourt, farmer, fourth generation farmer, Kings County, California, and also president of the Almond Alliance of California. We're going to talk about water issues. We're going to talk about the environmental wackos that are making agriculture difficult in California, the country's most agriculturally productive state. A lot of people don't know this, but California is about 50% more agricultural revenue than the number two ag state, which is Iowa. So you're not just the number one ag state out there. You are the number one by leaps and bounds. We're going to talk about all things almonds. We're going to talk about the almond industry, about the environmental issues, about water issues, and about some outlook of what's going to happen in terms of almond consumption and production in the United States of America. California is the only state, by the way, dear listener, that even makes almonds. So you got it all right here. It's California Almonds with Aubrey Betancourt. Uh, Thanks for being here. Aubrey. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here, Dean. All right. So I kind of put some uh, put some information out there um, about. Great. <laughs> hey, I like I like I love me some Blue Diamond Smokehouse almonds. Everybody um, does. Man. Those things are the bomb. They are. They are. And I even have them in my briefcase so that if I'm running through an airport and I don't get to eat before I hop on a plane, I at least can have some almonds on the way. Although I miss pronounce that obviously because anybody that's ever worked with the almond producers knows that the almond producers don't call them almonds what do they call them aubrey well there's a there's this interesting geographic differentiation somewhere north of merced uh california they like to say almond um not sure why uh i say almond because i grew up south of there uh and uh, i just i don't discriminate just just keep growing the nuts and be the best in the world at it so however you want to say it almond almond you keep eating them we keep growing them that's how it works they told me when i did a speech at one of those california ag events years ago and the guy said i grow almonds and i said i'm not sure what that is and then finally someone pulled me aside and said he's trying to say almonds and i said he got speech impediment no they just call them almonds and i said why and finally i said hey dude why do you call them almonds says don't you know when we uh, when we process them, we beat the L out of them. <laughs> All right. So talk to us. Almonds are a tree product or a tree nut. Uh, they're related to a peach. Uh, I love eating them. I have been to California, but for my listeners, which are a broad spectrum of agriculture, tell us about all before we get into the legislative and the outlook and all that. Just give us a little background on almond production. Yeah, well, so almonds uh, in Cal, you know, almonds in California, as you as you already mentioned, uh, we produce eighty percent of the world's production of almonds, ninety percent of the United States production of almonds. So uh, it is a unique and small community that has this amazing global footprint. Uh, it's about seventy six hundred farmers. Uh, employs about 110,000 people between on farm all the way up through the hauling and shelling and processing of that product and our handlers who are our brokers. 
and so it's I'm just always amazed at the sophistication and the uh, progressive nature of this community. I um, thought, Aubrey, that when I, I spoke to the Almond Alliance of California five years ago at your national or sorry, your annual conference. And um, I, I learned a lot, you know, being there with them and, and talking to the producers. I thought that California produced 100 percent of the United States almond crop and 80 percent of the globes. You said we do produce 80 percent of the globes, but not all of the almonds in the United States come from California. Is there like one other state that has a few trees? Uh, actually, uh, California is the only state that is commercially producing almonds right now. We're, okay. we're seeing some folks trying to get, you know, almond, and we're going to get into this, but almonds are going to chase resources to grow, right? So uh, we're looking at a little bit of experimentation in other parts of the West, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona. Uh, but really, it, it, it's your Marconas coming out of Spain. Uh, it's just a few of the alternative products. We do grow Marconas in, in California, uh, but but Spain has always kind of had a market for that. And what's, um, a, Mar- what's a Marcona? Marcona are those nice, big, fat, white, blanched almonds that we love to see in your fancy charcuterie boards when you go to different hotels. Okay. Okay. So we produce, California produces 80% of the world's almonds and 90% of the United States almonds. And it's not that there's another state doing it yet. It's that the other almonds that come into the United States do so from Spain. Spain and so the only other global, uh, if you will, uh, competition, um, I don't call them that just yet, uh, but it's Australia and Spain are kind of the two growing and emerging markets, which makes a lot of sense when you consider that the largest uh, uh, demand globally for us, which is 70% of the almonds grown are actually uh, exported out of California. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's India and the Pacific Rim and Germany, interestingly enough, is also a very large consumer of almonds. And so you're starting to see some emerging markets, whether or not Spain and Australia can grow on the scale that we do or have the diversity that we do or have the standards that we do yet to be seen. You know, the European market likes to hold itself to some very high standards that can be very restrictive. And Australia has uh, just as many water problems as we do in California. So, um, you know, it, 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 they are emerging markets, um, but I don't see California almonds or American almonds not being dominant uh, on the global stage. So, if you grab after California, if you grab Australia and Spain, you pretty much have all the global production between California and those two countries. Yes. Okay. So climatologically, uh, we, you've got to have certain, I can't grow these at my farm in Indiana, right? Nope, probably not. <laughs> and, and tell me about, I, I said that I know they're related to a peach because if you look at an almond before, before it, and you can correct me here, it's got a shell and a hole. Am I right? There's the shell, the shell, the hull, or the hull and the shell, then the nut. So kind of walk me through that and tell me how it's related to a peach. Because the person that's listening says, Damien, you even know what you're talking about. A peach is a fruit and, and got you know fuzz on it and it, almost a nut. Tell me, tell me, tell me about this. I'll, I'll walk you through all that. So first, let's start with the climatological component to this. Why only three places in the world are we able to commercially produce this, this product? Well, it's because of a very unique uh, geology, a very unique climate, which is that truly Mediterranean climate. So if you look at the latitudes in the central San Juan, Valley of California and you draw it straight across the map, you're going to find Spain falls in that exact location, that same band. So you're looking at a very unique uh, climate. And then you jump to the Southern Hemisphere, you have a very similar situation, uh, almost identical mirrored on the Southern Hemisphere with Australia in that regard. So you're looking for that that very unique Mediterranean climate. You add then the soil components of California and the Great San Joaquin Valley, uh, which runs about 800 miles long, 50 miles wide, has this amazing soil content, this loamy soil that was created 
created by uh, glacial runoff over over millennia uh, that created you know Yosemite, then fell down and created this amazing valley. It has great so, uh, mineral content. The, the soils are wonderful. Has a great aquifer uh, for water as well. So you, you have California as this one of only a handful of Mediterranean climates around the world that you can actually generate an economic revenue off of, uh, which is why California is also the largest agricultural economy in the United States. Uh, and and has over 400 commodities grown here at a commercial scale. I spoke so, at the California Farm Bureau uh, convention in December of, of 2021, and they made sure that I knew that about 426 or f- over 400 agricultural commodities produced there. Now, almonds are among the top three or five of the dollar amount of ag revenue out of California, am I right? Absolutely. So, and actually out of the world or out of the, excuse me, out of the nation. So uh, we are the number two commodity in California uh, for agricultural products. Number one is still dairy. Interestingly enough, we're right behind them at Mm -hmm. almonds. And then actually, uh, you know, nationally, and this is where I like to flex my muscle. I'm an unapologetic California farm girl. I love talking about how we are a diva. We grow this many commodities. We can grow 365 days a year. And yes, we are the largest ag economy that everyone forgets about, but even more so I'm going to brag again, Almonds are the number one specialty crop export of the United States. Right. So this is a high, again, a small niche community with this massive global footprint. Yeah. 7,600 farm operations, I think is what you said. 7,600 farm operations essentially produce 80% of the whole world supply of almonds. And you're not talking about small dollars. You're talking about some pretty amazing dollars. All right, Aubrey, do me a favor. Give me some numbers. Um, we like to talk about money. So this is the Business of Agriculture podcast. Throw me some numbers, dollars about almonds. So we're looking at, I already said, we're the number two commodity out of California. That's a $5.6 billion commodity uh, in 2020 um, and uh, and only going up from here. And when you actually compare that to that, so it's 7,600 grower operations, and then you compare that to 110 processors, so our haulers and shellers and processors. And then you look at the acreage number here, which everybody wants to follow, especially as we look at the water considerations in California, but less than uh, 60 or about 60% of our operators are less than hundred acres. So that's the biggie right there, because it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's a lot of money per tree and, but they're not huge operate. I mean, I'm out here in Indiana, corn and soybean acres where, you know, if I, if my neighbor buddy farms a thousand acres, it's a, a part-time job, you know, and you're talking about almonds, a hundred acres is the average producer has a hundred or less acres of trees, right? Yep, absolutely. So it's about 60% of our growers are about hundred acres or less, myself included. Um, How many tree? Yeah, you and your family have an operation. You've got employees. You do some custom work, you said, for some neighboring dairy operations. How many trees are on an acre of almond plantation? I assume that when they're little, um, they, then they get bigger, but I don't know. what What's a tree per acre uh, almond plantation look like? Oh, I have to get you that number back. Uh, but I want to say we do, oh... 60 trees an acre, I think, maybe more. I'd have to get that number for you. I'll pull it up. I'm interested. And then you plant them. And this is the tough part. You talk about the money. I remember speaking with an almond guy and I said, when do you actually get a viable return? It ain't like planting soybeans where you put them in in March, April, May, and then you harvest them in uh, September, October, November. You put a tree in the ground. When do you get a first commercially viable harvest of nuts? About year three. So, I mean, you're looking at the permanent crop structure in California, right? So you've seen this shift into permanent crops from row crops as water has become more scarce and you're looking for, for a number of reasons. I'm 
it's 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 climate in addition to water management uh, around the state and regulation. So the as water has become less reliable, you're looking for what's going to get you the highest rate of return on the lowest amount of water. Your permanent crops is where a lot of this has shifted. Mm-hmm. And so these are your trees, your almonds, your walnuts, your pistachios are your big three. Your almonds are your quickest return. It's about your third year. You should be getting a harvest off of your, your almonds. So you plant the tree and you're doing nothing but pouring resources into it for three years. And then it, it gives you a return. Your walnuts are about five to seven years. Uh, usually around that five-year mark, four to five-year mark, you'll get a you'll get a return. The biggest investment is your pistachios. You'll plant pistachios and and you will pour resources on it for almost ten years before you get your first viable crop off of pistachios. Ten years, and also you're not talking about farm ground that you paid three hundred dollars an acre for it. If you no. wanted to sell, uh, if you wanted to sell an acre of your farm right now, can you give me a number? Oh gosh. Uh, no, I don't want to give you a number right now. Uh, just because I know our water situation so well, but I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The first question anybody asks in buying and selling ag land right now in California is what's the water on it. And here's why, because the surface water right now is trading at about $2,000 an acre foot. Okay. So let's talk about And, and for comparison, for comparison, that that location for two thousand dollar an acre foot water normally is about three hundred dollars an acre foot. Okay, so you just told me you used the word the number two thousand dollars, and then you said it was three hundred dollars. When did this? How rapidly did it go from three hundred to two thousand? The moment it went to a zero percent allocation. So we have a very interesting water situation in California. One of the reasons it became the great agricultural economy that it did, and it became the fifth largest global economy that it did in less than a hundred years, is because. Right. We developed a water supply system that captures rain and snow as it melts off in this Mediterranean climate. So our winter is when we get all of our our moisture. It comes Mm -hmm. between October and April. Uh, And then we don't get summer rain. We don't get, unlike parts of the country where you're used to getting rain all year and it doesn't rain for two weeks and you declare a drought in Texas. That's not how that works here. Um, We don't get, we don't get rain for most of our summers. So the, the the system of dams and canals was designed to capture this rain and snow, protect from flood damage and control and deliver that water 365 days a year. Um, that water is distributed every year through what's called an allocation. Okay. Uh, we have both a state project, which is operated by the state government of California, and we have a federal project, which is operated by the federal government of California. In some places, they share infrastructure. So there's certain reservoirs where both the state and the federal government store water in it. Um, but they move this water through the state. So two thirds of the rain and snow is in the northern third of the state and two thirds of the population and economy and farm ground is in the southern two thirds of the state. So the entire system is predicated on grabbing that water in the north and delivering it down to the south, storing it and delivering it down to the south. The system is designed to hold about three years worth of water. So it also is a drought resilience mechanism designed over 100 years ago. I mean, this was the brilliance of this system, mm-hmm. provide water for at least three years. Uh, however, as, as that system has evolved, and more importantly, as we have evolved as an economy and as a, as a society, the system was designed for agriculture and municipal and industrial use. Now it has a third water user, which is environmental protection requirements. And about 50% of the water within this system is now dedicated for environmental protection requirements, leaving about 40% for agriculture and 10% for municipal and industrial. So that has been this system and said, we're going to add a new water user. We're going to make it the largest water user. And we didn't expand the size of the system to do that at all. And so the population has now, since about the 60s, when the last bit of construction was done, the population has almost doubled. Right. And the and the require and we've added this third water user and made it the largest water user. 
So you are, this is a real challenge. This is one of the main things we want to get to is that you're, you're, you're being, you're being starved. Um, I had a guest on this very podcast about a year ago and we talked about money and we talked about numbers. And again, this is interesting. You went right to water when I asked you about dollars per acre, because what this guy told me that he's with ag America lending. And he said, and and this is anecdotal, uh, I, I guess, from me to from him, you tell me that we've seen land in California that maybe went from 25 or $30,000 an acre to 10 or less because of water restrictions. So is there, is that really happening where we're seeing uh, an erosion in property value because of just the water lack of availability? Yes. Okay. Shorter answer is yes. And it's going to, it's going to continue to change. And here's why. Because now we've added another, the state of California has added another regulation on water supply. So the backups, the backstop to this surface water system has always been groundwater. Yeah. And I, you know, I was describing earlier this amazing aquifer. That aquifer actually was overdrawn until that surface water system was developed and put online. The ability to deliver water 365 days a year with this continuous back, you know, back uh, uh, development of new supply, recharged that aquifer to pre-project levels in less than 50 years. So the aquifer was made healthy very quickly because it is a healthy aquifer when you're delivering surface water to recharge it on regular. But as the restrictions on the surface water delivery became less reliable and what used to be 100% delivery is now reduced to, I mean, a good year in California is if you can get a 40% allocation. So if you get 40% of your contract, that's a good year. That has been happening for a 40% thousand. of what you thought you should have gotten. Yes. That is now almost considered normal. That would be a great year for us. So like you're talking, this is historic. So in other words, the, the Aubrey Betancourt farm in Kings County, you 20 years ago were allocated this many acre feet or this, you know, six inches foot or whatever the hell the thing yeah. is, six acre inches or whatever the thing sure. you were allocated a certain amount. And, and that was the way it was historically. And now because they just uh, the government said, well, you know what, you're not going to get that now. And so who decides th- this? So it's it's decided in two places. Um, you have, like I told you, you have this kind of uh, joint system and the system has to adhere to federal environmental protection as well as state environmental protection. So when the federal government uh, took on a couple of different environmental uh, priorities, one being water quality in this area called the Delta, which is this kind of heart area where the water flows into and then is pumped over that two thirds line. um, They started looking at water quality. And back in the nineties, they said, you know what? We're concerned about fish species. We're concerned about salmon having the ability to have flow and temperature control. We're concerned about habitat and we're concerned about water quality in this area. We're gonna take all of you south of Delta, we're gonna take 20% of your contract and reappropriate it to this purpose for environmental protection. The idea being, if we can keep it healthy, you'll still have reliable water supplies. But you know that old Reagan saying of, uh, you know, I'm from, I'm from the government and I'm here to help is yep. the most weird phrase. I think the sister phrase to that is, I promise I'll never do it again. Oh yeah. It's kind of like we're, the, t- the income tax in 20 in the year 1913 was temporary. Isn't that the deal? Uh, the income exactly. tax was temporary and it was going to go away. How's that working out? Exactly. So that starting at 20% is now 50% or more depending on the year. And it, it's large part in due to environmental uh, requirements uh, based on um, biological opinions, looking at a number of species that live in the Delta or are dependent on the Delta. It includes salmon, steelhead, so your your migrating species. It also includes something that everybody seems to know about, which is the Delta smelt. smelt. The smelt. The smelt. smelt. 
which is this indicator minnow. They call it the indicator species, basically meaning if it's doing well, the health of the delta is doing well. Um, and, uh, and so over the course of time, the Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National, National Marine Fisheries determined that the only way to protect those species was to push fresh water out to the ocean and not pump it into the storage capacity and delivery throughout the rest of the state. And so uh, that was instantly taken to court in a number of cases because under its, its first iteration in 2000, uh, 2008, 2009, it basically said under both biological opinions that two thirds of the state of California, its farmers particularly, would only receive one month of their contract. They would only be allowed to move water and store water one month out of the year. Mm-hmm. So that was taken to court and it was determined that uh, that those needed to be looked at again. It took them 10 years to the federal government, 10 years to do a new analysis. It left the system under what was called agency discretion, meaning the fish agencies would look at what was going on in the environment and then inform the operators, my engineers, my water wielders of the Bureau of Reclamation, which is our federal entity, and the Department of Water Resources, which is our state entity. And so the environmental agencies would tell the engineering agencies, hey, here's what we see going on. You can turn up pumping or you can turn it back down, depending on what was going on with species and water quality at the time. And so it left it in this this system that was designed for certainty, the system that was designed to backstop and provide certainty and protection and created this amazing economy and this amazing world. Uh, was thrown into complete uncertainty and has been thrown into complete uh, um, variability. Uh, and so it's, it, it is what has been the driving factor of what is, if you want to know the quickest way to change behavior, the quickest way to change a society, affect their water supply and they will change their behavior almost instantly. Mm-hmm. A great example of that is, is I can take you to water districts and regions of California that the moment that that first 20% was taken in 1992, you saw within five years a 70% investment in uh, alternative irrigation, such as drip and micro sprinklers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all good. Ultimately, uh, just had an episode here where we talked about a company called Sup Plant, uh, and they are uh, they're all about reduction of using technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and high tech stuff with then improving irrigation systems to use less water. Ultimately, that's all good, yep. but deprivation of water. Means a lot of people lost their livelihood, lost their entire net worth. I mean, you probably can give me examples of someone that truly like they their land is worth one fourth of what it was because now they have no water. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, You know, and we're seeing it in real time. Uh, especially now that groundwater regulations are starting to come online. So what happened is as the surface water became less reliable, everybody started turning their wells on again. And it started putting too much pressure on the aquifer because it wasn't being recharged the way it normally would. And interestingly enough, California doesn't actually acknowledge groundwater recharge as a beneficial use of surface water. So it's, it's, it's mind boggling how out of date, not only the physical infrastructure is, but the rules and policies that we use to, to regulate it and to operate it. Uh, So our our farmers are really in this situation where uh, if you don't have surface water delivery and worse yet, if you're in an area, what we call a white land, where you have no surface water contract, you are not connected to those two systems at all. And you're completely dependent on a well, you will likely be told this year, if not in the next coming years, that you used to be able to have three acre feet out of your well per acre per year. Now you'll have one or maybe 0.5 acre feet out of your well per acre per year. So they're going to, they're going to be government regulation on how much you can pump. Um, how's that monitored? 
uh, reporting through what are called groundwater sustainable agencies. These are newly created government entities that were. Oh, we created more government. We created more government to give you the illusion of local control. And so that is monitored and reported, batched, and then reported to the state. And you have until 2040 to uh, these, these agencies are developing plans. The plans have to be pre-approved by the state government. The, the, if they are approved, then the agencies have until 2040. And then depending on where you are, you have a couple of other deadlines to get into compliance or to be meeting your plan. And if you are not, the state will step in, adjudicate your basin and take over. And so this goes directly to your question uh, from, your, from your lender friend. First thing you're looking at is what's the water supply? And quite frankly, I know certain banks and lenders as far back as two years ago, three years ago, they would not give a loan to a landowner in California unless they proved two sources of water on their property. Yeah, because obviously the asset just has so much less value. It's so amazingly productive for all the climatological and agronomic reasons we've already said. But if you can't turn the if you can't turn the flow on, your your asset is question for you you know uh you're, you're a smart lady and and i've been around the block a couple of times and i've gotten more this way i always kind of understood it but i've understood it more in the last 10 years uh i explained to everybody follow the money especially with political issues follow the money is it that environmental groups pay politicians donate to politicians to force this to happen? Or do you think the politicians honest to God are this environmental themselves that they're not even doing it for the money or, and I've hypothesized this, if I'm a developer and I want to put a bunch of homes outside of Fresno, I can pay $50,000 an acre for those uh, acres to put homes on them. But if I can bleed them out of water, all of a sudden I can pick up that ground for $10,000 an acre and turn it into homes. Is there, is there a, a situation where politicians and developers are working together with environmental groups to get this all. I mean, I know it sounds a little conspiracy ish, but it is California after all. Uh, you know, it could be a combination of all three. First of all, I think one thing to keep in mind is uh, the uh, I forget what the statistic is exactly, but I want to say like, you know, 75 percent of the state's population lives between San Francisco and Los Angeles. They're completely coastal. And it is a completely urbanized environment. So I think I would draw back to the urban rural divide, which we see this nationwide. It's not oh, sure. Right. California. So I think you have that problem. You have uh, an agricultural economy and community that is this giant powerhouse. And yet it's one point five percent of the nation's population. There is no relationship with our consumer anymore, almost. And the relationship that we have is completely through our food companies, which isn't a bad thing. And I actually think I'm a little hopeful uh, with some of the, uh, you know, trends towards wanting transparency and understanding and accessibility. But, um, but we have definitely lost that connection and lost that idea that the farmer is of value, not just this romantic idea, but that the farmer is of value. And as such, the inputs needed for the farmer are of value. And we have somehow detached from this concept. And so we, we somehow have forgotten it takes water to grow things. It takes a fertilizer to do things. It takes land to do things. It uh, doesn't mean that we can't change cultural practices and become the best. And quite frankly, Californians are the best in the world, in my opinion, in terms of uh, utilizing the resource in a, in a economically and environmentally beneficial way, uh, an environmentally conscious way. Um, and we have figured out how to, especially in the in the uh, almond sector, we have figured out how to monetize that and figured out how that has become a premium for who and what we are and how we develop. And we can still become the large powerhouse that we are still doing these practices. That being said, to your point on the political aspect of this, you have the rural urban divide. I think that's one part of it. I think we have this loss of um, 
and I don't have the, all the answers. This is something that I'm sure you and you're, you're speaking in this audience thinks about all the time, which is, you know, losing this connection with our consumer and the value of agriculture in our society. Uh, and, you know, I think it comes back to, like you said, follow the money and follow the votes. The urbans have, this is why going to a, a direct election would be dangerous. You only need to win eight cities. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. that's that's really what it comes down to in my mind. And so the enviros, uh, you know, environmental community, you have some that are very progressive and they're very ideological. And we have sacrificed our well-being and our public safety and security uh, on that altar. Well, uh, you know, Aubrey, people are going to think they're getting political or the worst shit that we sound like we're, we're right wingers. But there is there are a few things when people accuse me of that. I said, OK, there is no denying that. Mm-hmm. San Francisco and Los Angeles are blue and environmental groups appeal to the left. And those are the organizations, period, bar none, that push for regulatory uh, environments that are not only harmful sometimes to ag or cost a little bit of money, downright put us out of business. I mean, and and so it's not getting political. It's the the reality of what we are facing. Nobody's ever said, oh, I'm from San Francisco and I'm a small government conservative and I want want to be out here farming more, give them all the water, the hell with the smell. That's just not what's going to happen. The other side to this is there are good conservation and environmental organizations that do see valuable and working lands and the flexibility of this land. And really, if there's anything I can come back to is this. I am not anti-sustainability. I want to see my ground and aquifer update. What has infuriated me about what's gone on with the smelt and with the salmon uh, is that we have poured trillions of gallons of water after these unbelievable amounts of water after these species, and they have continued to decline. If we are failing, then what we are doing is not sustainable, okay? Economic viability to achieve an environmental outcome is how I look at sustainability. And if we continue to fail the species, in addition to failing our economy and our communities, not only just our communities uh, of farmers, but our communities of color, our our rural and disadvantaged communities that we are out here trying to protect and trying to help, um, we're we're failing across the board. And so there are communities and environmental organizations and, and social organizations in parts of California who are saying we need a reliable water supply restored and we need balance restored. And it's really sad to me that they are not allowed to have a voice at the table as well as they could. And we are going to need to come back to balance because the the balance of our economy, in addition to protecting to our environment, um, uh, you know, has to come into balance. I want to think about this for a second. You know, we in ag, we do a lot of preaching to each other and telling each other how good we are. And I get some pretty good applause that I can get on media and I can talk to a broader customer base about what you're talking about. And I was on some media here a week or so ago. I think you said you saw the clip and I was speaking specifically to the consumer uh, because I already got the ag people and me, we understand one another, but talked about some shortages. You know, there is hope that what's happened between the COVID disruptions and uh, which are government imposed uh, and, and dis- didn't disrupt it, just damn near disjointed supply chains. And then followed by this Ukraine-Russia situation, I have an optimism that I have not had in a long time that finally our consumer might act when I'm getting interviewed by cheddar news to talk about wheat issues and what is going to impact the consumer at the grocery store. And I can tell them exactly what's happening. The consumer, the last couple of years, maybe, and now the last month or two is seeing this and saying, Oh crap. I I just always took this for granted. I never even thought about the fact that I'd show up and there wouldn't be any almonds. Mm -hmm. And so we might be in a good situation there, Aubrey, what's your, perspective. Yeah, I think um, 
the American public and our consumer is finally knowing what it's like to be a farmer, where the thing that you want and you need and the thing you need to do, the thing that you do is not available to you. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the fun of, hey, I love the means too, of where's my, you know, where's my item, my tracking number, and it points to a boat off a of Long Beach. I love those means. That was great. But this has now trans- transcended that. Um, where this idea of, you know, just the basic needs of the grocery store are not available to me. The basic needs to do my business, whether it's fuel uh, to drive to work is not available to me, is now un, un, uh, uh, untenable from a financial standpoint. It is not sustainable for me. Uh, I agree. And I, I think there is an opportunity if we can message correctly, if we can help them understand that we are part of the solution, that we want nothing more than to grow for them, that they have to be united with us in um, one, we do this for them. And two, we need them to help us find the resources we need to do this too. You had a problem that has nothing to do with the water issue. even though that's a big one or government. You had a weather problem. Um, two, two, three weeks ago, someone told me that we were going to have uh, a big crop loss. Uh, and, you know, we've already got issues with supply chain. We've got wheat not coming out of the Black Sea area. We got consumers that are starting to say, holy crap, is there going to be a food shortage, which there actually will be less there in the United States be. than other places. Are we going to have an almond shortage because of weather? So this year we did have a, a pretty extreme freeze event um, and uh, it hit right at the in the middle of bloom, uh, which is the most important part for us. That's uh, when our little nutlets get started. Uh, and so when those things burn, it's pretty rough. So looking at the state, we did pretty well in the southern part of the valley. Didn't quite have the freeze hours that uh, we did in, in, in the Sacramento and northern areas. And so we are experiencing some pretty severe damage up there. We'll have a better assessment of that damage here when we have what's called the drought. So once everything falls and our leaves come on, we'll know a little bit what that was. But I am predicting a, a disaster uh, order being declared very shortly. So what's a disaster look like in terms of the actual result? Does it mean that we have, if California is making 80% of the globe's almonds, did we lose did we lose one fourth of our production? Did we, I mean, I know you can't say this too soon. Yeah. We did lose almonds is what I'm hearing. Lost almonds. Yeah. No, I'll give you examples. I immediately contacted all of the counties. I immediately contacted growers in all of those counties and said, give me your numbers of what you see is burned. And anyone in the Sacramento area lost anywhere from 80 to hundred percent of the samples they pulled. So, so I'm looking at a total wipeout in certain areas. Yes. Okay. So we're, we're looking at a total wipeout in areas North. And so it could end up being 25 to 50% less almonds. Yeah, could be. Um, I would put it in that 25% range, maybe more. The, the tree can trick us. So we'll see. Um, when do the almonds, when do we start harvesting these? We'll start harvesting at the end of July, beginning of ours. My favorite thing is, uh, as a, as a dairy farm kid from Northern Indiana, where we don't have nut trees is when I first went out there and saw, uh, some help me out here to the listener that's learning about this. You got these almonds to come on and you said, we start harvesting when August. Yep. Okay. You take a device and go up there and shake the shit out of the tree. Don't you? Oh yeah. It's the coolest thing ever. So <laughs> it's- our little. They, they look like you should post a video. I'll send it to you. Our shakers look like little Star Wars vehicles that fly around the orchard underneath the canopy of the tree. They're these little reinforced chains with a giant claw on the end. They yep. grab the tree trunk. They put down feet. They lift the tractor up so the wheels don't move and they shake the shit out of the tree and all the nuts fall. Yeah. And, and then little sweepers and you go through the sweeper, which in our part of the world, meaning Northern Indiana, they would use like uh, to uh, to clean off the, the snow off the sidewalk. So it's essentially yeah. a, it's a, a sweeper on the front of a machine and it yeah. goes down the rows and sweeps all these almonds into the end. And then what happens? 
Uh, we we pick them up and they go into a, an augered conveyor belt. Pick them up, get vacuumed up, don't they? We can vacuum them up. Um, yeah, we vacuum them up and into a conveyor, drop them into a gondola, depending on how you want to do it. There's a couple sure. of different ways. So uh, it goes into a truck. The Like you were talking about earlier, yes, it is part of the peach family. And most almonds are actually grafted onto a peach rootstock. Uh, and so you have the, the, the hull, the fuzzy hull, the shell, the hard shell, which looks like a peach pit. And then inside is the nut itself, the almond itself. And so each part of that is actually consumable. The hull is used for, for uh, feed. Uh, has It's a great source of sugar and protein for- yeah, they use those for livestock rations. Livestock, right? yep, absolutely. Uh-huh. The shells can be processed into, uh, uh, actually they're using them in plastics as a reinforcement for plastics. They can be used in that. And then of course- it's very fibrous. It's very fibrous. And in fact, I thought I heard maybe some landscaping application, uh, mm-hmm. bedding for cattle. Uh, bedding for cattle, it has a lot of uses. So every uh-huh. aspect of the almond actually is- is usable. And now, I mean, just to be climate smart, if you will, uh, we actually are doing what's called whole orchard recycling, where we'll mulch the entire orchard when it ages out and work that back into the ground. And we're sequestering 2.6 uh, tons of carbon per acre when we do that. Time to start selling the carbon credits. Um, are you optimistic that when you and I talk in a year or two or 10, that the Almond Alliance of California and your members are going to still be celebrating? Are you saying, I'm afraid that these environmental uh, regulations are going to push us uh, further and further to where we got to go somewhere else. We're going to take our money and go to Spain. Yeah. So here's what I think. Someone actually accused me of being paid to be optimistic. And I was like, why can't I just be bullish? Um, This is, like I said before, this is incredibly progressive and sophisticated uh, industry. Yep. Um, I do see challenges ahead, especially the shipping challenge is kind of throwing me off a little bit in terms of if I were to speculate. Uh, Water-wise, I think almonds are still dominant in California. I think we do have growing challenges from Spain and Australia, which the shipping, I think, is actually more affecting us there than than the growing. Uh, Our water challenges, almonds will follow the water. They will find land that has secure water. And so I, I see maybe acreage dropping a little bit, but not terribly. And I see it shifting to where water is available. So if almonds were traditionally grown in, uh, you know, certain parts of south, you know, the southeastern side of the San Joaquin Valley, they'll move. Why? Because that's going to have groundwater regulations. So the, the acreage will shift to where there's more secure water in the northern part of the state. You so, said- yeah, so I, I think we're still dominant. I think we're going to have two to three really rough years. And it's going to be a combination of the two things hitting us at once, which is supply chain. Uh, which has created this massive amount of carryover of product that's sold overseas, but hasn't been able to be delivered. So it's sitting here. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about like 1.9 billion pounds of product uh, that, 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 that it would, it would, it would travel, but it can't. Can't 1.3 billion pounds of product would travel, but it can't sitting here. So, so here, here's my question then for you. Uh, you know, I'm a dairy farm kid. I rent my farm ground to a dairy farm or um, back in Indiana. And uh, uh I've spoken to so many different California groups. And the one thing I keep telling them, unfortunately, I said, dairy is going to leave. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that California should be the number one dairy producing state. Many of your dairies did pick up and move 20, 30 years ago, started going to Idaho. It took their money, sold out to developers, whatever, went to Idaho. Now, South Dakota is growing their dairy industry. And they're saying, come to South Dakota. We'll leave you alone and we'll let you have some water. The reality is, even though you got a big population and you had the ability to dehydrate it and ship dairy products over to Asia, there's no reason for California to be the number one dairy producing state when we can grow dairy. We make dairy in Indiana. We can't grow almonds in 
in Indiana. So I've got a prediction that there will be some idling of acres because of the water, but the acres that remain won't be doing dairy. Instead of 426 commodities that California Farm Bureau is so proud of, there'll be one less. Dairy is going to probably be the one that I think is on the chopping block. Am I right? Yeah, dairy is consolidating rapidly. I mean, all agriculture is, but dairy definitely is. Um, and uh, consolidating, consolidating, but still producing the same amount with the same number of cows, or consolidating and leaving because I think it needs to leave California because of the water issue. I'm not being any way mean. I just think it's no, going no, no, to no. have to leave because of water. It's a very water intensive product, milk. You're not wrong. It's a combination of both. I mean, it's you know, it, it's it, literally a combination of both. So, um, I, and I think you're right. So, you know, part of me is, you know, ha, 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 I'm to be the number one commodity in California, but I mean, you know, that's kind of sad. I don't want to see someone go down as a way of my coming up. Right. That's not fair, but, um, and not, not cricket really, but, uh, yeah. And I don't think you're wrong. I think our, I think what's going to happen is our orchard lives will get a little bit shorter. We'll take them to full production, but, you know, open land in California is about to be very valuable because of the versatility of it. What's going to happen is you won't farm a thousand acres. You're going to farm 800 acres and leave two, you know, 200 fallow to meet your groundwater requirements. So you're going to shift the water that you would have put on a row crop. So to keep your trees alive, depending on the year or whatever may be going on, open ground becomes very valuable because of its flexibility as a permanent crop that becomes a concern, right? So how does this affect the permanent crop side? I think you're going to see because of the economics of it, it's going to be about balancing your portfolio between permanent crops and open ground to give you the flexibility to have the water on your property or in your accounting to be able to keep the trees viable for as long as you can, bring them to full production, and then looking for those alternatives to reimagining our assets, both from the ground itself and the resources that it provides. I actually think there's going to be awesome opportunity for conservation and habitat. And this idea that following does not have to be permanent. There's this prediction that California is going to follow another 1.5 to 2 million acres as a result of groundwater regulation. We've already permanently followed about 1 million acres since 1992 when our surface water started being reduced. Right. So those and acres, and we think of fallow, you know, we think, okay, it's going to lay there fallow for a year and then we're going to gain the moisture. Like in the North Pacific Northwest, in the Northwest, they'll sure. let ground sit to gain moisture and then plant a crop every other year. Right. You're talking about this stuff's been sitting there for 30 years. What happens? It grows up in sagebrush and, and then all of a sudden it's uh, for jackrabbits. What happens? Yeah, it could, it could do that. There's a definitely a push for rewilding landscape. The irony of which is let's build a wetland on something that didn't have water, which is why we're not farming it. That's a problem. But this is this is a literal conversation we're having. But that doesn't, uh, you know, I don't want to poo-poo it too much. I think what's going to happen is, yes, we are going to see acreage taken out of production as a result of increased uh, regulation, and we are we know that'll happen. But does it have to be permanently retired? I don't think so. I think we have. This goes back to the sustainability goals that we set for ourselves, and if we can actually bring them into something that is achievable and economically viable then you absolutely need farmers in order to achieve the environmental goals we're trying to achieve, to achieve the habitat goals we're trying to achieve, to achieve the efficiency we're trying to achieve. And I'll tell you, some of my urban members and partners actually do understand that. And they understand that we have to have land that's working, land that's flexible, and people that know how to do it. So here's my message. If you're out there and you're part of the environmental community and you want to see these changes and you want to see a more sustainably grown food supply, a sustainable management of our environment, then you absolutely need the farmer to achieve it because you in a city are limited with what you can and cannot do with the resources available to you. 
So I, yes, are we going to see land go out of production in California? Yes. I, I don't believe it has to be permanent. I think we can have this idea that fallowing becomes a crop in our rotation and we can create a really uh, amazing, uh, uh, you know, achieve some of these goals that we've been setting out to achieve. And I think the sooner the farmer can achieve these goals, as opposed to someone handing it to them and regulating them into it, the sooner we turn the dynamics around. And I'd like to see us in that position always. Her name is Aubrey Betancourt. She's the uh, a fourth generation farmer. Kings County, which is, I think, is, is that one of the four three bigs? Remember the old thing about California agriculture? Three counties. There are three counties in California. Of course, they're massively big. Uh, they're like the size of Maryland or something. But <laughs> there are three counties that each sell more agricultural revenue each year than like 25 states. It's remarkable. Is Kings one of them? I know it's uh, Fresno, of course, and Tulare. And then is Kings or Kern or one of the other? Oh, interesting. So Kings is is huddled by Fresno to the north and Tulare to the east. And then I believe it bounces between Kern to the south of us and San Joaquin to the north of us. Got it. Anyway, her name's Aubrey Betancourt. Aubrey at almondalliance.org. Aubrey at almondalliance.org. If you want to learn more about almonds, they go to almondalliance.org. Is that presumably where they go? Yep. It's a great industry. She's a smart gal. And she uh, came on here to tell us all about the issues they are facing. If you're not in California, you're listening to this, you probably can just say, damn, I'm glad we got water. Uh, so, uh, also, uh, I want to remind you that I'm doing some really good work with extreme ag. So if you're uh, a farmer, wound up your game, or you want to know what some of America's more progressive, success-minded, yield uh, record-setting farmers are doing, and some trials with great products, go to extreme ag. That's X, no E on the front of it, extremeag.farm and check out all the great work I'm doing with the guys over there at Extreme Mag creating content every four days. We're dropping new videos. It's uh, really cool stuff and it's free. So go to extremeag.farm and check that out. Aubrey, thanks a lot for being here. Um, appreciate your last thoughts. Anything you guys say on the way out the door? Eat more almonds, right? Eat more almonds. Always love it. Storable protein. Please do. Uh, and you know what? Um, I actually am, despite all of the challenges, I think we can rise to meet them. If we as an agricultural community in the United States and in California can lean into these and solve these problems before someone decides to regulate us into it, uh, we will uh, we will not only achieve the goals we're trying to achieve, but we will reimagine the agricultural economy. And I really hope we can have a renaissance of that 1.5% that's feeding the rest. I think we're a beautiful and wonderful dynamic uh, community. And we definitely can lead. I'm with you. And I got to tell you on the way out the door here, I don't know what the pounds of almonds consumed per American is, but I'm probably a little above average. I love smoked hot smokehouse almonds with a, a cold Coors banquet. Uh, but I will confess, I do not drink almond milk. I'm a, I'm a purist and a traditionalist when it comes to whole milk right out of the Holstein uh, with two scoops of Nestle quick dumped into it and stir it up for good chocolate milk. So you're okay with that, aren't you? I don't discriminate at all. So long as it's a, it's a great California product, you go for it. <laughs> Anyway, uh, eat your almonds and uh, think of uh, think of Aubrey when you do so. And think of those 7,600 California farming operations that are producing the almonds for you. And unfortunately, you might want to go and grab your almonds now because it sounds like based on the supply coming in in August, prices are going to go up because we're going to have uh, not a shortage. There's never a shortage, right? It's just never a matter of supply is dwindled. So therefore, prices go up. Anyway, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Aubrey. Thank you. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming.
We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com slash growers. 